would take your Bible this morning and or your phone or whatever device you're using, uh, turn it to Joshua. We're going to be back uh, in the book of Joshua this morning. And as we think about these things together, I want to talk about specifically about the idea of leadership transition. That is where we find the person of Joshua. And I really want to ask the question this morning and ask this. Why was Joshua such a good replacement for Moses? Now, if you think about transition, especially leadership transition, uh, I guess this church knows a little bit about that as of recent. Uh, Over the past 16 or plus months where you have been without a lead pastor, but by God's grace, not without pastors. And you know what, here's something that I, I want you to appreciate. You know, you think about transitions and how hard they are and how difficult they become, not only for a life of an individual, but also for the life of a church. And in this case, for Joshua, the life of a million people. Following different people, I no doubt, thinking about it from Joshua's standpoint, how challenging that must have been for him. But what is it about transitions that really make it difficult for us? Well, one, transitions sometimes all of a sudden breed forth this understanding that whatever was familiar to you before is no longer familiar to you now in the present. You have some sense of familiarity, but in some component of a transition, always your familiarity is challenged. Now, I know people long enough, at least in the pastoral ministry, to realize one very obvious thing. People often don't like change. You change anything, and you've got to be thinking in your mind, who am I going to tick off by doing this? See, there's something about familiarity that breeds a level of comfortability. We come, I mean, if all of a sudden we said, you know, we're, we're going to do things different, it would shake things up because familiarity is challenged. There is a sense in which transition where things that were not known are now known. You know, there's at some particular point when the church is going through a leadership transition for 16 plus months and they're thinking, who are we going to get to lead and to preach? And now you're thinking, and now we got him. Great. We're stuck. There's things that you knew that you didn't know and now you know and maybe you're happy and maybe you're not. But there is a sense of unknown that causes in transition uncomfortableness in the soul. It also challenges us when we transition to various things in our life because we have this innate uh, reality that we begin to compare things. We compare things of what they were like to what they are like. Now think about it in the sense of the people of Israel. Here they had, had had this great, incredible leader. I mean, of all the people, I mean, Moses had a story beyond most. Here, a faithful set of parents at a very inopportune time, while the Pharaoh was looking to kill children off, here he's put in a little basket and floated down the Nile. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter, He's picked up and lived in a life of luxury 
in Egypt, all until a point of his life where God transitioned him so that he could get him to be the person that he wanted him to be so that he could be the deliverer that his people needed. And then you think, I mean, poor Joshua, he's like, I'm just Joshua. <laughs> I don't have a story like that. My parents didn't shove me out in the little bulrush basket. But here I am, Joshua would say, and I want to be faithful. Faithful in God's goodness to understand this time period in the life of the people of Israel. Joshua comes to the forefront of a scene of people who have wandered the wilderness, who had came to the brink of the promised land. He had spied out the land. He had went with the twelve. He had come back with a very different disposition than all the other ten. He had learned something about this people that, that were the followers of God, the people that God had redeemed and brought out of Egypt with a strong and mighty hand. He learned a few other things, things that were not so delightful, like Moses, they're stubborn. These people are rebellious. These people have been, we've been wandering around now because people's lack of faith. We could have been in there. We could have been enjoying the, the land flowing with milk and honey, and yet we have been stuck in this wilderness for years. I love how one theologian put it, that for those who were dying off in the wilderness, it was a time period of a reminder of God's judgment in their life. Oh, but for those children of those people who were being judged, it was a time period of being forged, of faith, forged in faithfulness that this God that they served, that they met at Mount Sinai, that came down in a thundering disposition and said, don't touch the mountain, that he meant business. And if we don't follow him, we could be out here for a very long time. Joshua comes to the forefront, and Joshua chapter 1 is where we, where we see this leadership transition. I want to read that together as we walk through uh, this, these, first initial, uh, these first initial verses together. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into, land, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this, and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, so the great, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. When you think about, uh, as he would say these kinds of words, no one will be able to stand before you, and as I was with him, I will be with you. Doesn't it not highlight the very reality that God's presence would go before Joshua that would comfort Joshua's soul in the midst of a leadership transition? There's no doubt that up to this particular point, it was no shock to the people that Joshua was this next man. 
But all throughout the book of Joshua, what you're going to find is a, is a re-emphasis on a promise that had, God had given to Abraham. You can find that promise, what we, we often describe as the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Here's what it says. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and, who, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Moses lived, the people of God lived with a promise of the very triune God from heaven who came down to, to Abraham. And you can only remember this picture, you'd have to go back and read it, where all of a sudden the, the animal was split in two as a sign of the covenant and the presence of God went through with a torch to ratify the covenant and say to Abraham, I will do this for you. Now Joshua comes to this scene and it's now, he says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, he said to Joshua, Moses' assistant, my servant is now dead. Now people kind of wonder, now why would he, have to, why would he re reiterate that? It's because all of a sudden, Moses, by striking the rock and disobeying God, was told he's not going to enter the rest. God said, I want you to come out to Mount Pisgah. I want you to, that overlooks the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. The land that Moses begged them, that he, Lord, please, he would say, let me come with them. And God said, no. He looks over this mountain, and at that particular moment, he saw the goodness of God and his faithfulness from all these long 40 years. And yet Moses would see it from a distance. And then God would take him. And he would take his life, and he would no longer be with the people of Israel. So for him to say, Moses went up to the mountain, he's now dead. He's not coming back. When you have a leader that you incredibly love, and no doubt if you had people, okay, remember back to the Mount Sinai experience. The people saw the thundering and heard the thundering voice of God. And you know what they said to Moses? Moses, we can't go before him. This God is holy. You have to speak to him on our behalf. Moses became the mediator between God's people and God himself. Moses was thankful to be able to serve at this capacity. The book of Joshua verifies this particular promise so that when you walk through, when we walk through Joshua, we can say, God promised, God delivered. God promised here, God delivered here. In every single way, in every single transition, God promised, God delivered. And you can bank on that every, every single point in your life. It verifies God's faithfulness and truth. In fact, think about it for a moment in Deuteronomy 28. As the people of God were put on two different mountains, one of them to, to uh, declare the blessings and the other one to declare the cursings. Why would he put them through this exercise? Because he wanted them to beware. That as they wandered in the wilderness, if they don't keep they can have the blessings of God if they follow and obey in faithfulness. But if they don't obey in faithfulness, they will experience the cursings that God would said would come to pass. 
And in some respect, the book of Joshua is all about delivering on his promises of the Abrahamic covenant that God would make a people and he would give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and this was to remind them of the God that they served. And yet they were coming into a land filled with all these ites, Canaanites and his Perizzites and Hittites. And you can imagine all these people were different. And in fact, it was a different world because it wasn't a, a, a region with one single king. Every single little town, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, everyone had its own king. It wasn't like a king over all of them. All of them had their own king. Joshua records roughly 40 years of Israel's history as they looked to gain hold of the promise that God said he would bring to their lives. Now as we look at this, I want us just to, to remind ourselves this reality when it comes to leadership transition is that God is faithful to provide the right leader at the right time for the right reason. Now, I don't even know to some degree if you would have asked Joshua at the time period of Moses and said, Moses is dead. Joshua, do you want to lead this people? Like, I bet there was some fear and trepidation. Like, I saw how they treated Moses. It's not like all the remembrances that came to Joshua's mind was like, hey, this is going to be good. I'm the leader of a million people. He's saying, I've watched them in different time periods of their life. I've watched them complain because they didn't have water. I've watched them complain and say, take us back to Egypt. I stood with them as they looked across the Red Sea and they complained and grumbled, saying, we would have been better off in Egypt. I was with them when they said, we're, we're fine with the bread, but we want some meat, and God had to send quail. Joshua was with them every step of the way when the 12 tribes came back, or when the 12 spies came back and they gave a bad report. So for Joshua, this was no light experience. This was an experience where a godly, gifted leader that had been anointed by God, Moses, the great leader, of, the great deliverer of the people of Egypt, from the people from Egypt, is now dead. You know what, when transition happens such as this, you have to feel, in a sense, for Joshua. Because Moses was likely one of his closest friends. To have a loss like that. And when you experience a transition in life and you lose someone that's that significant to you, that person who's, who's been a, a huge discipler in your life, who's brought the Lord Jesus Christ in your life to bear on your heart, and all of a sudden you see them diminish and now they're gone. All of us have experienced a component of loss. The pain that it feels like Joshua would have felt that. Joshua would have came to this particular presence. In fact, the first time you even hear Joshua's name uh, was that he was one of the spies, and you find this in Numbers chapter 13. And it's interesting, he's laying out the tribes, and he says this. He says, of the tribe of Ephraim, I want to pick one of the lead men whose name was Hosea. And now by the time you get to the book of Joshua, 
Moses adds an addition to his name, and his name, Hoshea, meant salvation. And yet you get to the book of Joshua, and Moses changes it to Yehoshua, which actually means Yahweh is salvation. So as the people were introduced to Joshua, and Joshua was commissioned before him, they said, in a sense, they would say, you remember Hosea. Yeshua, Yeshua will now be your one who you will follow. Well, why is this so significant? Because Joshua was not to be the one that people would look to and say, you delivered us. You realize that sometimes people have this fixation on various components of leadership that all of a sudden that they fix themselves to a particular leader and they go, you're amazing. You did everything. You're number one. Well, guess what? That's dangerous if that leader doesn't follow the Lord. Joshua's name and the meaning of Joshua's name was to go with Joshua to be a constant reminder that it was not Joshua who saves, but it was Yahweh who would save. And when you're on the brink of the promised land with a million or so people, and you're looking out, and you're seeing all these kingdoms in the land of Canaan, and you're saying, they've got fortified cities, they've got giants in the land, what are you going to need? I'll tell you what you're going to need. You're going to need the God of Israel, Yahweh. And Yahweh was such a special name to the people of Israel because it was the personal name of God. It was the covenant-keeping nature of God. In the Old Testament, when the Hebrew used the word for Elohim, he would describe it as Elohim and always refer to it as the creator God who made the heavens and the earth. But this God, Yahweh, he was the personal covenant-keeping God of the Bible of the people of Israel who came down and spoke with his people. He loved them. He had a relationship with them. Which is why the Old Testament often would say things like, what God is there like this who speaks to his people? Because all the gods of the ancient Near Eastern culture were just men blown big. And they're just like people, just like what you experienced in the story of Elisha and the prophets of Baal. They called out to these foreign false gods and they never would answer him. But the God of the Bible, Yahweh, was different. And Joshua needed to make sure that he was reminded of that. And as Moses lists his name, he describes it as Yeshua. Now why is this so important? Because when Jesus came in Matthew 1, verse 21, and then you see the Hebrew understanding of who Jesus is. Guess what? how you would say Jesus in Hebrew in the New Testament? Yeshua. And it was this connection between the deliverer who would bring him into the promised land of the people of God and the one who would now come and save the people from their sins and give them an eternal rest that they had longed for for centuries. So when they would hear this, you wouldn't even know this until later on when, when all of a sudden the angel comes and says, you will call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. He will be a kind of deliverer that has never come before him. One who wouldn't just enter his people into a land or break apart a kingdom. He would rule it and he would reign with it and he would be the most righteous king that ever existed from that time forth 
for forevermore. Joshua was anchored even in his name to remind himself it was Yahweh, it was not Joshua. And every leader of the chapel, every elder, every deacon, every congregant, it ought to be a good reminder to you that it is not on one man. It is on the multiplicity of elders, deacons, the congregation as a whole. A church does not rise or fall by one person. Leaders are supposed to be responsible. Oh, I can tell you very much that lifts a lot of weight for me as your lead pastor. It's not my job to figure out how to get everything right. We are just to be faithful to God and to his promises and to expose the truths of the living God to the people of God. And as long as we are faithful, we can expect that God will do a work that none of us could do ourselves. Oh, and we sit back and we watch him do the work and we give the praise and honor and glory to him. Well, who was this Joshua? This one whose name means Yahweh will save what made him such a great leader? This morning, I want to give us a couple of snapshots. We have to go through the history and understand how significant this individual was for a point in time because God, when he transitions people, he always will bring the right leader at the right time for the right reasons. And it's so important because leaders don't self-magnify themselves and say, hey, I'm going to be your leader. Joshua did not stand before the people and say, hey, I think I'm a good person, and he went out campaigning amongst the million in the camp. Like, vote for Joshua. <laughs> like, I'd be a good choice for Moses' successor. He didn't do that. Because the people of God knew if God was ending one thing, he would provide in another way. It always challenged them to trust well, Joshua was quite an interesting individual, as we see foretold. Well, one of the things of a snapshot in the book of Joshua that I want to bring you this morning, just to remind you, okay, four different snapshots of Joshua's life that I think helped us reveal that he was a great person chosen by God for a very particular task, for very particular reasons that God would show himself faithful through Joshua. Here's the first one. Joshua was a slave in Egypt. You know, not much is mentioned of Joshua, and we can't go back to a particular text of Scripture to say, oh, here's what Joshua's like, life was like back in Egypt. But we can go to Exodus chapter 1, in verse 11 to 14, and, and verse 22, and Exodus 3, 9, and here is what you will find, that the oppression of the people living in Egypt was great. God brought them to the land of Egypt. I can't take time to read every particular portion, but, but just to remind you of these texts, to go back later, it says the oppression was so great, the people had become so numerous that the Pharaoh himself said, what are we going to do with these people? we got to stop their growth. We've got we've to annihilate these people, otherwise they will be greater than us. So they start this whole process of child destruction by killing off the children of the Israelite individuals. Guess who was there with all that? Joshua. 
Joshua knew what it was like to be tasked in Egypt to build various uh, entities for the Pharaoh himself as the people were tasked to build all of these things for Ramesses. He knew what it was like to do a hard day's labor. He knew what it was like to go to a friend and have to uh, encourage him because the labor was intense. He knew what it was like to hear complaining from fellow Israelites, wondering how long they would be there. He knew what it was like to have a history of 400 years of slavery, wondering, will God ever bring us out of this place? So when Joshua was chosen by Moses, you could imagine, they, was he a person who could relate to the people in slavery? You better believe it. Was he a person who could understand the heartache so that when someone said, hey, let's go back to Egypt, Joshua would go, what are you talking about? I heard all of you complain. You didn't want to be there when we were there. And now he brought us out of there and you want to go back? Joshua was a prime candidate to debunk any false thinking that the people would have been bringing with them from their time in Egypt. Any assimilation of religious distortion, Joshua could have said, there's one God, Yahweh alone will save. I watched Moses do it, and now I'm responsible for the faithfulness of God's people. Oh, Joshua could look and could embrace as a slave the sovereignty of God. See, as Christians, we have to really appreciate the reality that when, when, when we look back at our lives, we're, all, we're, we're often looking in the rearview mirror, which I think the Bible describes as providence. And yet now in the front, of the, of, of the, uh, the front view that we face as we're driving through life, it's sovereignty. It's sovereignty in, fr- sovereignty in the front and providence in the rearview mirror. I trust you going forward because of what I can see that you've done in the past. And Joshua was a man who understood God's sovereign rule who would send a deliverer who had grown up in the Egyptian household, who would come and do signs and wonders. Joshua was already a fairly chief individual amongst the people of Israel right up until the point that God delivered him. Joshua would have remembered, by the way, that fateful night when all of a sudden the angel passed before each of their door frames and if they didn't have the blood on the side and on the top, the firstborn would be killed. Joshua would remember the weeping that went, that was heard all through Egypt of the loss of life because of the disobedience to Yahweh. Joshua was a slave. Now God was going to use him in a very special way. Can I just remind you? You know, perhaps I can recognize that all of our past backgrounds, we don't look back and say, well, I remember when I was in this, but we remember certain events, don't we? Can I just tell you this, that in God's sovereignty, where he has you, what he has you doing, and how he's going to move you forward is intricately woven in what he's done in the past. He has shaped you in a very unique way, and here's the beauty of the body of Christ, that no one person is shaped by the exact same experiences. 
God saw, sees fit that every person in this room has a story in and of themselves of the God of the Bible intervening, intersecting their life in such a way that says, I'm molding and making you into someone you could never be without this history. Christian, you are not the person you are today by chance. You are the person you are today because of God's sovereignty and God's providence in your life. Every circumstance, every pain, every heartache, every suffering, every joy, every moment has been because the God of the universe has sustained you up to this point right now so that you could live for him. He hasn't made a mistake with the kinds of suffering that you've been through. I mean, I think if, if people would have gone, uh, you know, with, with all these traumatic experiences to people who had lived through slavery in Egypt. <laughs> I mean, God didn't make a mistake for these people and for Joshua so that he could say, you know what, I'm going to use all of it. And that's why Romans 8 is so precious to us. That for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He never leaves any history wasted in your life. But so often we look back and we blame shift and we say, oh, so-and-so ruined my life, or my parents did this, and if they wouldn't have done this or said this, or this friend, this happened to me, or, and it ruined me. Now, what will ruin you is if you don't accept the God Yahweh of the Old Testament that was revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ, as Yeshua, the Savior of sin, that will ruin you. And it will ruin you not just for this earthly lifetime, it will ruin you for eternity. It is such an important reality for you and I to come and realize that we need this Savior, not just for saving us from hell. Yes, he did that, praise the Lord. But he is a God that keeps us and watches over us and will never leave us, never forsake us. No matter what history, we'll look back on and say, this is what happened. You know what, 10 years from now, you're gonna look back at another portion of history of your life. And the older you get, the more history you have to look back on. It's somewhat undelightful. <laughs> because you're reminded, my time is going fast. But you know what it should remind us of? I better use the time wisely. I better use it in a way that pleases the Lord because we will have a story and a history that can magnify God, just like we heard this morning at baptisms. Isn't that precious? Here's who I once was in my history, but that is not who I am now. We have men and women and children who have devoted their lives to Jesus Christ so that at a point in time when they have trusted and repented of their sin and trusted Jesus by faith, their history collided with the Son of God in a way because God saw fit to draw them in a very special way that when he said, you're a sinner and you need me, that you said, I have nowhere else to go. That's exactly the position that Joshua was supposed to, to exemplify before the people. We have nowhere else to go, and we can trust in no one greater. We must follow this God. Oh, the, the jo, uh, Joshua as a slave, although much, uh, much is not stated, 
but assumed because he lived that life. He knew what it was like. But that's not where it stops. The first actual time that we hear of Joshua was shortly after they come out and in Exodus chapter 17. Take your, take your Bible, if you would, turn back there for a moment. Exodus chapter 17, because this is a really fascinating account. Here they had, they had just stood at the crossing of the Red Sea. Here, all of a sudden, they had, they had gone over. The people, the armies of, of the Pharaoh had been annihilated. They have sang the song of rejoicing of God's deliverance after, after they had, uh, God had defeated Pharaoh's army. The first time in, in Exodus chapter 17, the people need water, and Moses is called to come and get water for the people out of the rock. And in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, we read this account. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. But whenever, Moses, whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and, he put him, and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on either side. And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the, name of the, uh, called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, get this picture. First, the first recorded perspective of Joshua actually is, is, is in this passage in Exodus 17. He was a leader among leaders. He was a man who was a general, a man who could be called upon and say, you know what, we're going out to fight. Well, you had a whole bunch of slaves who were not used to fighting war. And yet, at some level, Joshua was able to garner men and be the general that they would follow. Moses told him, we've got to fight. And so Joshua pulled the men together. And now notice this. Okay? As we follow along in this in verse 17 and verse 9, he, cho he chose men. Uh, he said, choose for us men to go out and fight. And he says, tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with the staff in my hand. Now, what is this whole staff thing about? You know, it's a reflection of the very reality that Yahweh is the one that will save. What would happen to Moses when, when Moses with the great rod that 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 all of a sudden brought them out, the rod that turned into the snake. Moses took it before them. He said, as long as I'm raising this up, we're going to win. What is that as a sign? God is doing something, Joshua. You're not doing it all. And you'd imagine, you know, fighting. I mean, this is hand-to-hand -hand combat with swords and shields. And all of a sudden, Joshua's looking up like, keep those hands up there, brother. <laughs> we need you. All of a sudden, they start to get heavy, and all of a sudden, Amalek starts to win. And then Aaron and Hur bring up his arms, and all of a sudden, Israelites start to win. They said, we got to figure this out. Moses is getting older. Uh, he doesn't have as much strength. 
uh, Aaron, Hur, grab his arms. We're going to hold him up. We're going to support him. Joshua could look up at, uh, at that mountain. The men could realize that when the battle was finished, that the victory belonged to their God, Yahweh. It wasn't the strength. It wasn't the power. It wasn't their own might. It wasn't Joshua's military general prowess, his ability to, to, to flank at the right time to defeat the Amalek army. It was God who would do it. Oh, Joshua, as a general, had to learn this over and over again as they would travel. Joshua would be the general, Moses' right-hand man. And we see this in Exodus chapter 17, verse 11, uh, where he says, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek would prevail. Now notice this in verse 14. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Now why do that? Because here you already have a foreshadowing of a man who would be used by God in the future because he needed to remember this point in time to remind the people, God will deliver us from the people of Canaan. He will be faithful and he will save us from all of these things in our life. Well, what are the things that we can learn? Well, you know, Joshua as a general he couldn't bank on just his ability to be a good general. Even if Joshua was the greatest army general of all time and he didn't have the Lord, that they would be destroyed. Even if Joshua was the greatest personal uh, leader that the people had ever known, even if he, in different regards, was a little bit better than Moses in his organizational skill, it wasn't about that. It was about the Lord. It was about the one true God of Israel who had the power to conquer, who had the power to save, who had the power to redeem life. He had the, he was, this was the God who had promised and the God that would deliver. This was the God who, by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, guided the Israelite community out into the wilderness. Oh, Joshua was familiar with the presence of God because Joshua was not only a slave and a general, but he was Moses' personal assistant. See, Joshua got let in to the inner circle of Moses' life. By God's grace, we find Joshua in these passages in Exodus 24, 32, 33, and in Numbers 11. We see a variety of accounts. This is an interesting one when we think about uh, of, of him in Exodus 24. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law of the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And so Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua. And Moses went up into the mountain of God. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, now get this picture. Moses goes up to the very mountain to speak with God and the very God of creation writes on the tablets of stone in which Moses now comes and holds in his hand the very words of God. I mean, you think that was like, don't drop those stones. <laughs> like, Joshua, you make sure that we're all right here. We're coming down the mountain. They get halfway down the mountain. They come around the corner. And what does Joshua hear? 
he says, there is a noise of war in the camp, in verse 18. He says, but he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. What was that? It was the people of God in only a 40-day time period erected a golden calf and brought Mo- and Aaron as their leader. And Aaron, when, when Moses confronts him, he says, Aaron, what happened? He said, well, I mean, the people wanted this. And so we took all of their gold, we threw it in the fire, and out came the calf. I think Moses is going, what is happening here? Joshua hears the sound of false worship. And he's coming down the mountain with commandment number one, thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images against me. Moses sees this debacle of unbelief in the people of God who he had so miraculously drawn out of Israel or out of Egypt. And he's so angry, he breaks the tablets. And guess who was there watching this? Joshua. He heard the voices. He saw the calf. He heard Moses' excuse. He watched the people, stubborn, rebellious before God. So when Joshua was chosen, this was no small task for him to say, I'll be willing to be that guy. And the interesting side is that as you had with Moses, Moses said, I can't speak. And Joshua just submitted. He just, he he said, "If, if God was with Moses, and he'll be with me. That's what Joshua 1 said. He was with him when he came down that mountain he, was stu- he stood at the door of the tent of meeting. Could you imagine this? When all the people of Israel put up the tabernacle in the midst of them, and all of them would set their tents around him, and the pillar of God, when Moses would go to commune with God and go into the Holy of Holies, and the cloud would move to the front and center of the Ark of the Covenant, or to the, to the place of meeting, and Moses would enter that place, and the cloud would descend, and God's presence would speak with Moses. And who stood at the door? Joshua. Waiting for the beloved servant of God, the leader of his people, to come out. Waiting for direction from God himself. Only moving when God said move. Never before, never after. And then you have this occasion where Moses, who had been endowed with the Spirit, all of a sudden needed help. And God takes a portion of Moses' spirit, and there are people who are prophesying in the camp, and they're doing all these wonderful things. And Joshua comes on the scene, and he says, Eldad and me, Dad, they're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And Moses says to him, Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? No, God gave these men to us to help us. And Joshua sat at the feet of Moses to be able to learn about the God who works wonders and the God who directs and the God who cares enough to multiply leadership amongst the people because no one man could do it alone. Oh, chapel, God has graced this community with multiple elders, multiple deacons who have been called out from amongst the body of Christ, who have been called, who have been faithful, who have been characterized in a life of, of, of faith to the Lord. This is no small task. Can I just challenge you? How much are you praying for these men? We need your prayer. But it's not, it doesn't stop there. It goes to the whole body. 
We, we, we need that level of prayer, commitment. Joshua learned loyalty. He was such a loyal friend to Moses. He was so loyal, in fact, that he was just afraid that somebody might be taking a little bit of that from Moses when Eldad and Medad started to do that. And Moses had to say, Joshua, it's all right. They can do it too. God uses more than just us. He uses a multiplicity of people. And Christians, God wants to use you. God wants to use you in this body to care for people, to love one another, to carry out the Great Commission, to give the gospel to someone who has never known it. Someone who has never heard that Yahweh saves, that he has come in the person of Jesus Christ, who has is, who is, who is taken the penalty of sin. He has paid their debt in full. And they can come and receive his righteousness as a gift of free salvation. And they can enjoy him forever. He wants all of us to be involved, but the leaders ought to embody it. And I believe Joshua, the slave, the general, the assistant, he embodied these various things that God used in his life to say, I think he'd be a good leader. And we look at this and we say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, now let's take a look at Joshua as the replacement. Turn back to Joshua 1. Moses was dead. And he says in verse number, in the, in the following verse in verse 2, he says, Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into land that I am giving to them, so th- uh, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given it to you just as I promised to Moses. Oh, for Joshua, couldn't you imagine? The one thing that he wanted to hear more than anything else is that God would not leave him. When Joshua heard, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I think Joshua's spirit could say, let's go. Let's go. We're going to fight because God is, God's presence will be with us. He will cross us over this Jordan and every place where our feet tread. Notice, did you catch this in the text? He says, I am giving it to you and I have given it to you. See, in the Hebrew language, it does something fascinating. It puts it, it, puts it in, a, in, a, in a particular uh, verbal frame to say, it is as good as done, even though it's not done yet. What he's trying to say to him is, you can trust me. It's as good as done. All you have to do is go over and be obedient and fight. I've already given it to you. And guess what? That's exactly what we'll find out that God had already put his presence in the land, we're going to find that out when they come to Joshua and the battle of Jericho with Rahab. Their mindset had already been uh, uh, acclimated to there is a people and they serve a great God. He says, I have given it to you just as I promised to Moses. Believers, this promise-keeping God from the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, all of the covenants that he's given to us, the salvation he promises us, he never goes back on promises. Even when you mess it up, and even when I mess it up, he doesn't say, well, now you don't get it. You know what that is? Grace and mercy. You still get to be recipients of the promises of eternal salvation Because even while you're a sinner in progress, being redeemed and being sanctified, he loves you incredibly. 
with a love that is bound by his promise and it's bound by his truth. And you, Christian, nor me, nor anyone else on the face of this world can ever take that away from us. No matter how bad it gets, no matter difficult the struggle, no matter how much the suffering, you have the promises of God, believer. You will come into his presence. And he will welcome you home to a place of rest. He wants you to be there. Look at Joshua in Numbers 28 or 27, verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Now here's a man who is a replacement. If you want any man, you want a man who is filled with the Spirit, don't you? See, the interesting reality is, is that in the Old Testament, the Spirit was given a number of, for a number of different things. So clearly Joshua was a man who was a, a, a Jew who was a believer in the God of Yahweh who had delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians, b- brought them out of slavery, and now into the land of promise. He was certainly a man who was a believer. And yet in the Old Testament, you have what most theologians call a theocratic anointing, a special disposition of the Spirit of God to lead his people, to guide his people. Joshua, when Moses laid hands on him, because Moses was endowed with this Spirit, Joshua was laid hands on, he was able to have the theocratic anointing. Samuel then anointed anointed Saul. Saul had the Spirit until it was taken away from him. That wasn't salvation taking away. Or David was anointed, and, and David says to this, don't take the Spirit from me. This wasn't David saying, don't take my salvation away. This was David saying, don't have your anointing, my theocratic anointing, be taken away from me. Joshua was this same man who was theocratically anointed before the living God in the eyes of the people, was laid hands on by Moses himself, who was directed by God and said, this is the man. I mean, I don't think anybody else in Israel is going to really quibble with Moses like, I don't know, we got another candidate coming in the back here, just a moment. Joshua had been groomed by God and served one of the greatest prophets who ever would exist in Old Testament time period. I mean, who else, as they sat by uh, defeat after defeat, could, could say something like this, well, when Moses said this to me, Moses gave me this kind of instruction. Oh, man, if Moses, <laughs> you got that. <laughs> we'll take your word for it. He was the guy. In Deuteronomy 31, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua, present yourselves in the tent of meeting, that I may commission him. Now, who's doing the commissioning? God is himself. God is the one saying, this is the man. Moses didn't raise up a successor. God raised up Moses' successor. And they presented themselves before the tent of meeting. And the, and the pillar of cloud came and he, and he confirmed this reality. This is the guy who's going to lead you into the promised land, just as I promised you. Deuteronomy 31, 23 says this, And the Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them, and I will be with you. Those are the words Joshua wanted to hear. God, please don't leave us. 
Jesus Christ came as God the Son, as a representative of God the Father, Yahweh in the flesh, to redeem his people and all who would repent and turn to faith in him. Why was Joshua such an incredible guy? Why was he this individual? Because Joshua was a man filled with integrity. Joshua was a man who had morals and ethics and principles and promises that his soul clung to. He was willing to serve. He came from slavery. He was a man in whom God placed his spirit, a man who feared the Lord, who would fight the armies of Amalek, who would fulfill the promises that God gave in the future to wipe out the Amalekites. He was a leader who was positioned by God himself. So often as I teach in a seminary setting and I have young students and men going into ministry, and so often they look and they'll say like, I want to be in this position. And they have no idea what that position is going to take from them. What it will challenge them with. But they can look and they often see like, I want to be the guy. They aspire to some public component, not knowing the challenges that it will face. And I just challenge you, young men and other people who aspire to leadership positions, don't place yourself there. Be patient and wait for God to put you there. If you try to prematurely take things that don't belong to you, God will remove you from it. Don't aspire to things without the servitude. Don't think that it's all just about the glamour of being the guy. Because I can tell you what, if you probably interviewed Joshua after the conquest, all the death and destruction that he had experienced, Joshua recognized that leadership costs a lot. Be willing to sacrifice, fear the Lord, in the time period of waiting, well, God brings you to a spot to use you in a very special way. I would challenge you. Do you lead with integrity? Could you say you were like Joshua? Here's a few questions that I think will just be helpful. Let me give you a couple. Do people understand more of God's mercy because of the way that you respond to their mistakes as a leader? Do they know some things that... It's all right to mess up <laughs> under my watch and under my leadership. Can you be that kind of integrity, that person of integrity? Say, okay, let's, let's learn from our mistakes. Like, now, where can we help you? You're not disqualified, but let's help you be qualified. What about this? Do people understand more of God's holiness because of your high ethical standards? See, leaders are called to high ethical standards, to stand firm in the truth, to fear the Lord. Do people understand more of God's patience because you give them time to grow and develop? This is so critical. Do people understand more of God's truthfulness because of the way that you communicate honestly? See, Joshua was a man who held to the truth and the principles of God's truth. Ask yourself this, do people understand more of God's faithfulness because they see me keep my promises? When you say, hey, I'm going to be involved in this ministry, and then if you just decide to not show up, 
Don't be that kind of person. Let your yes be yes. See, Joshua was a great man replacement for Moses because he was filled with integrity. He kept promises because he saw a God who would keep promises. What about this? Do people understand more of God's kindness because of the tone of my voice as a leader? The people that you lead in your world and, and, and the places God's put you to lead, could they say about your tone, they care for me. They don't just bring down the hammer. Hey, moron, you did it again. Stop it. They don't say that. They say, okay, I can see where we messed up, but what can we learn from this? And how can we keep ourselves from doing this again? And I love you. And let's take it to the right place, and then let's get back on the right path. See, tone is so important as a leader. Do people understand more of God's love because, because I go out of my way to help and serve them as I lead? You know, don't, don't be in a leadership position and say, oh, I don't have time for that little stuff anymore. Be a person who says, I'm going to sacrifice for people. I'm going to love people more than I do anything else. And lastly, do people understand more of God's grace because I avoid being harsh and unreason with unreasonable demanding? See, Joshua was a great replacement because Joshua was a man of integrity. He learned and it was forged in the fires of suffering and pain and filled with grace as he sat at the feet of Moses and assisted him from day after day after day. And when Moses was gone, I don't think it was a big shock to anybody that all of a sudden Joshua would lead him into the promised land. God told him this, and he said, and he ended with this in verse 5. He says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Christian people, remember this. It's a truth we will go back to over and over again. He will not leave you. He wasn't going to leave Joshua. He'll fulfill his promises. He will get you through. He will sanctify you. He will bring you into the household of the redeemed in heaven. He will open the gates of heaven for you because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not because of works done by you or me. But those gates will open and he will say, welcome home to the eternal rest. That's what we're waiting for. And as Joshua walks the people, as we continue to go through, you can see why he's saying to them, and we're going to dive into this next time, why say, be strong and courageous? What's that all about? Because we need to be the kind of courageous Christians that live in a culture where there's all kinds of debauchery, and through the book of Joshua, he's going to, how to teach us how to do that successfully in a way that's pleasing in God's eyes, so that when we get before the King of Kings, and get to our eternal rest, he can say, well done. That's the goal. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Lord, thank you for Joshua's example. Lord, the ways in which you orchestrated his path from the time that he was a slave to a general under Moses, to Moses' assistant, to becoming the replacement that, that you wanted. Lord, he was a man filled with integrity, a man filled with hope. Lord, we want to be those kind of people who look to the one who saves, and we can say, Yahweh is our salvation. 
Lord, help us to cling to these promises. Lord, until you come to bring us home. In your name we pray. Amen.